The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, professor and author Rosemary Salomon on geopolitics and the rise of the English language. There is a value in having a common language. It can change, could become Spanish, you know, if I had to think of a candidate. But for now, it's English. And there really is a value to having a common language, to, for people to be able to communicate one-on-one. Across the world, young people know if you can speak English and read and write it very well, you have better economic job opportunities than if you don't. So there is this concern in some of these countries that we're losing our identity, we're losing our culture to English. Uh, to what extent that's real, I don't know. To what extent their languages will be used for knowledge production, that's real. That's real. Rosemary, welcome to Chatter. Well, thank you for inviting me. You've done a really interesting project that just begs for some explanation as to how you got into it. You have looked at the story of the English language, not not linguistically, grammatically as such, but looking at how English essentially has come to reign supreme in today's world in so many ways. But what that means in terms of populations and and markets and education and, and a whole bunch of areas that touch on everything from national security to national identity to uh, equity and inclusion. So tell me, how did you decide to work on this project and what was your background that prepared you for it? The background is, is very broad. Uh, I was a language major in undergraduate school Uh, That moved me, and I was doing literature then, but I wasn't terribly interested in literature. I was really interested in language. And so that led me into a doctoral program and a PhD, ultimately, uh, in linguistics and education. And I became very interested in what we would consider to be uh, sociological linguistics, sociolinguistics, Mm -hmm. uh, and also in language development in bilingual children. Uh, And so while I was working on my doctorate, I was running bilingual programs here in New York City for immigrant children. 
Uh, and there I saw that their language issues were just the tip of the iceberg. And I really wanted to be an advocate for children, an advocate for poor children. And that led me in straight out of the PhD into law school. Uh, and, and so I ended up right out of law school teaching, uh, teaching at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and teaching courses in language policy and education law. Uh, but I knew I really wanted to go. I, I had gone to the other side of being a lawyer. And I really wanted to teach in a law school. And that's how I ended up teaching at St. At St. John's Law School uh, in New York. And my early work, the early writing looked at uh, equality in a broader sense. So I wrote a, a book on equality in education. I wrote a book on religious dissenters. I wrote a book on gender. But then I went back to my roots in language, which I always wanted to. And, and the, the issues were becoming more ripe at that time. Uh, around the year 2000 or so. Uh, and so I wrote a book on immigrant tr children, True American, uh, and that was published in 2010. And that looked at identity, the issues of identity and equity with regard to immigrant children, mostly in the United States. But my work was taking a comparative turn at that point. And so the closing chapter looked at uh, the education of immigrant children in Europe. Mm -hmm. So after that, I was searching, I wanted to stay on language and I was searching for another topic. And lo and behold, I find these new news articles coming out of Europe, these two uh, controversies uh, on, on either side of the Alps, one in Italy, it was the uh, Polytechnic Institute in Milan. And that's a very prestigious institute uh, comparable to our MIT. And uh so the, the institute and, and the faculty at large and the students had agreed to switch all their courses, their graduate courses, master's and PhD courses into English in two years. Uh, and at that point, about 100 professors challenged it and threatened litigation, did sue them, ultimately went to the constitutional court. I ended up tracking that litigation very carefully getting to know the cast of actors in this whole drama, visiting the, the, uh, the Institute uh, and visiting classes uh, and getting all the, the legal documents and writing on that as it was proceeding, the litigation was proceeding. At the same time, this was the spring of 2013, I see this other legislative conflict going on in France. And it was a proposal to loosen up the very strict limitations on teaching courses in uni French universities in any language other than French, i.e. English, because that, seemed, of course, seemed to be the growing language. So here I had a legislative conflict and a judicial conflict. It was a great legal issue to start thinking about and writing about. Uh, and so I wrote an article on comparing these two. Uh, but then, quite frankly, it was my son who said to me, there's a book to be written here. Uh, and sometimes you should listen to your children. So <laughs> there was, uh, there yeah. was a book to be written. And the deeper I dug into this, I saw that this is really a, a, a global issue, a, a major global issue and one that was growing. Uh, yeah. But it was lo being looked at by linguists in one way and political scientists in another way and educators in another way. And I wanted to take this more comprehensive scope but also draw on my background in the humanities, the social sciences, education, and law to put this big picture together. So it started as a made a smaller book, just comparing Europe and the United States, looking at these English-taught programs, and then looking at the language deficit 
the foreign language deficit in Anglophone countries, and particularly the U.S. But then the, the deeper I dug there, I discovered what was going on in post-colonial countries, and I became fascinated, obsessed with it. And it was something I didn't know. I knew Europe very well. I knew the U.S. well, but I didn't know the post-colonial world. And there I had to sort out, well, which countries do I look at? I wanted, you know, I started looking at Latin America, South America, East Asia, South Asia. You know, this couldn't be, this wasn't volumes I was writing. So I decided on uh, uh, particularly South Africa because of apartheid. And the role that Afrikaans continues to play, that conflict over Afrikaans is the former language of the oppressor as compared to English and African languages. Uh, I looked at India and the caste system and the rising, rising nationalism in India, the conflict between English and Hindi and other, other languages in, in India as well. Uh, and then I looked at uh, former French-speaking countries, uh, and I chose Morocco because of the Arabic language influence there uh, and the role of France within Morocco and the waning role of France now in those uh, former French colonies. And I looked at Rwanda, which was not a former French colony. It was a German colony, then a Belgian colony, but the conflict uh, post-genocide uh, between France and English and how Rwanda switched over to English completely in a very uh, kind of a precipitous way. And so there came the book, and it was in three parts, Europe, uh, post-colonialism, and the United States. But in Europe, you also had the issue of Brexit, uh, and to what extent English was going to continue being the language within EU institutions, within the Commission and the Council, after Britain had left. Uh, so it, 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 it just it just kept growing and growing and took over with seven years and seven languages to get through the book. It's, it is a remarkable book that really covers so much about the historical colonial and current influence of, of English and could have easily, I, I feel developed into a thousand or 1200 page book because there are so many interesting case studies that you develop, but the deep case studies are on uh, obviously many of the countries you've mentioned and, and a few others, but but you do name drop a whole bunch of other countries that are relevant to the story. So there's there's something for almost everyone. I didn't do a count, but I'm guessing at least two thirds of the the world's countries are mentioned one way or or another here, and it's relevant to many more. So let's dig into a few of those cases you mentioned after we kind of set set the stage. Let's talk about English as it compared to other what I would call international languages, languages that via colonialism or science, religion, all of the reasons from the Middle Ages forward had some kind of presence outside of a, a purely local dialect or a local usage. By the time we get to the end of the colonial era, um, let's put it in the last couple hundred years, where did English stand re relative to French, German, Italian, Portuguese, and other languages when it came to its its use by people who were not native speakers? If you would ask the French, they would tell you 
that, and they're very tied to their language. They're very loyal to their language. It's so much a part of their national identity, which I think is probably difficult for us as Americans to understand. They would say, well, French was traditionally the language of diplomacy and the language. That's what I heard when I was a kid. I heard that if you're going to go into international affairs, French is the language of the diplomats. Exactly. I mean, I went to an all girls high school and you know, it, the idea was that uh, any educated woman would speak French, <laughs> and that was just it. That's not the case. That's not the case uh, any longer. But of course, I mean, you you also had Latin as the lingua franca mm-hmm. At, mm-hmm. At, at one point, uh, but that was d- different. I mean, it, Latin didn't have uh, an, an internet to spread it. It didn't yeah. have compulsory education to mm-hmm. to. Um, to, to make it more concrete uh, and uh, mandated in the lives of children. Uh, so when we care, compare English to Latin, I think that's kind of a, a faulty uh, analogy of why Latin ultimately died and the vernaculars started um, rising, but that had to do somewhat with the development of nation states as well, or even mm-hmm. before that, and, and with the printing press. So that's a whole other complicated story. But for many years, French was really the dominant language in Europe, in Western Europe. You know, the 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 Russian Russian aristocracy spoke French, right. uh, in addition to Russian. Uh, but any educated person in in Europe, in Western Europe, would have spoken French. Where English came in and started, well, part of it came through uh, British colonialism for sure. You know, there was at one point where Britain was covering about three quarters of the world uh, through that huge British empire. So you, you have the Caribbean, you have uh, you have India, you have some African countries, you have Canada, you have the United States, what became the United States, where uh, Britain was just flooding the world with English. Mm-hmm. And so it really came initially through uh, through British colonialism. Let me ask a little bit about that because I'm a map guy. And even as a kid looking at maps of the world, when you see maps of languages, it will often have them color coded across the entire country by the most spoken language. And therefore, a map of the British Empire that says, well, the British control this and they speak English, therefore, this is English. It made the world look like a huge percentage of the world's population actually spoke English, but that's not exactly right because the colonial experience, uh, different in some languages than others, and you tease out the difference in particular between French and, and English in some cases, but it's certainly not true that just because part of the British Empire, um, that, that the British took over in, an area that the population spoke English. Often it was the elites and maybe they weren't even speaking it as much as working as clerks and scribes. Um, First of all, do I have that correct? And secondly, what does that mean for our understanding of how colonialism led to language dominance in countries? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I mean, there really was a hierarchy in these countries of which group the the, uh, colonial hosts or or whatever uh, were, or the colonial country was going to teach the language, okay, their own national language. And it was a very thin layer on the top that would be taught English or that would be taught French. And they were the ones who would serve as the intermediaries between the colonial power uh, and the people. 
Uh, and the rest of the people largely were uneducated, were just totally uneducated. So even if you look at a country like India, and we consider India to be an English-speaking country, well, it isn't really. And the percentage of Indians who speak English well is relatively small. It's relatively small. Um, and now that you see Hindu nationalism rising in, within the current government uh, in India, you, you see a real strong uh, conflict where there's the, those who are promoting Hindi as the national language. Uh, and then you have areas of the South which are, have used English as a bulwark against, against Hindi. So even in a country like India, where I think most people would believe that, oh, most Indians must speak English, that's not true. It's just not true because the old colonial powers were not educating the large masses. And and particularly in India, they started um, initially focusing more on higher education and kind of forgot forgot elementary and secondary education. So you still see many poor, poor children in India being either not educated or poorly educated, especially in the rural areas. And that wasn't accidental in some cases. That is, there are the the historical stories of colonial administrators using access to language as a weapon to, to divide populations and ensuring that the only common language they had was not something that could unite them, um, which... I think there probably are some cases where it was accidental, but clearly there are some where it was not. And language was a weapon of colonialization. Exactly. Exactly. Well, let's turn back to Europe and then we'll, we'll spread out again. But I find it shocking in the modern sense. Um, I was unaware of just how much English had become so common across so much of Europe. And you point out that just 20 years ago or so, fewer than 30% of Europeans could converse in English. But the most recent data from even 10 years ago shows that a majority of citizens of the EU uh, list English as a first or a second language. And the way I look at those two issues is that there's a slight difference that explains a lot, which is the big difference in time isn't the main factor. It's only about 10 years or so between those data points. But the fact of whether you're conversing in it or whether you consider it your first or second language shows that a whole lot of people in Europe in in recent time have decided that they need to speak English as their second language or at least pick up some language skills in English. And it varies uh, across Europe from Norway, Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands, uh, to some other countries further in, in the South. But talk a little bit about the spread of English as the de facto pan-European language for people speaking vastly different languages in Europe, and they get together and they default to English, don't they? They do. But as you noted, it really depends regionally. You have the Nordic countries, you have Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and then and the Netherlands in the North, where their languages are what we call small languages. They're not languages that are spoken by millions of people like Spanish or even French or English. Uh, and so by necessity, they, they moved into teaching their children English and, and providing English instruction from primary school on forward. 
uh, way back the Nordic, some of the Nordic countries in the 1960s. That was really quite early. So you meet any Dane or Swede or Norwegian, and they're going to speak English really quite well in a very uh, comfortable kind of way, in a very in a very comfortable kind of way. Whereas if you go into France or Spain or Italy or Greece, you're going to see a much smaller number, percentage of people who do speak English well. Part of it has to do with how they present their films and their TV programs, which countries use dubbing and which countries use subtitles. And so in the Southern countries, you're going to see more uh, dubbing. In the Nordic countries, you're going to see people going to a, going to the cinema and watching an English-speaking movie in the original with subtitles in their own language, uh, and and so it began with TV and children. In speaking to some Europeans, they they say to me, "Well, when I was a kid, I learned English through cartoons, through American yeah. cartoons, oh, yeah. through American sitcoms." Mm-hmm. But it depends on what what country. Uh, you lived in. And now we have the internet. Now we have uh, streaming where they can stream movies. But when when you look at Netflix, Netflix is now offering you dubbed movies Mm -hmm. and and which, which my heart sinks because I really believed that presenting us with all these foreign movies, uh, people, even Americans would be more inclined to learn foreign languages. Mm -hmm. But if you're choosing the dubbing rather than the subtitles, it doesn't do much good. It does raise a fascinating point about the the influence of culture on language adoption and vice versa that, you know, the British Empire was huge, but you didn't see English as a de facto language in Europe at the height of the British Empire. In fact, even in relatively modern times, you had monarchs on the British throne who were speaking German as a primary language. Um, so it's more of a cultural thing that America ascendant in the 20th century and after the second world war and American pop culture during the last 70 years or so has been so pervasive around the world that it's the spread of the cartoons, the sitcoms, uh, Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson. Uh, these are the things that have made people around the world listen to things in English, perhaps read things in English. And it really is more about American English than British English, correct? Oh, absolutely. So when around the 1960s, when we saw the fall of the British Empire, where where these former colonies were gaining independence, and in the French Empire as well, that was post-World War II. Uh, America, the United States, was really gaining in dominance in, in a military sense, in an economic sense, but also you had Hollywood. You had Hollywood spreading American culture. Everything American became very, quote unquote, cool, uh, particularly for young people. It had a certain cachet about it. Uh, and, and now you see more Europeans speaking American English than British English. Used to be most educated Europeans spoke British English and they were educated in British English. And that is changing very rapidly. Young people in Europe are more likely to speak American English than British English at this at, at wow. this point. And you also saw the the development of the uh, EU uh, mm-hmm. and the need for some common language within those institutions, yeah. within the commission, the EU Commission and the EU Council. Uh, and as long as Britain was in there, as you know, it, it had more legitimacy, I guess you could say. But but Britain was in there for quite a number of years, and mm-hmm. so when Brexit occurred. 
it, it became a question. It still has been a question as to what is the justification for maintaining English as the quote unquote working language within the commission and within the council, even though you know other languages are considered official languages. Another thought that occurs to me uh, hearing you talk through that is the different approaches to official languages of international organizations. So on the one hand, there's the United Nations model, which originally was, we're going to pick a few languages that are the most dominant and frankly, politically are the languages of the members that are most powerful right now. But as the United Nations grew and grew and approaching 200 countries, not not every country's language is an official language that every document must be translated into and, and spread around. Whereas the EU, if I understand it, has gone the other direction where they're basically, you know, you get an official language and you get an official language and you get an official language. And that's great for the business of interpreters and translators and um, certainly the printing business and the uh, internet business for the the sheer volume of material being produced. But there are benefits and drawbacks to both strategies, right? As an official language for for, for a large organization that has a number of member states that, that need to understand what they're saying. You can argue that there's a linguistic justice there or equity that um, documents have to be translated into all these languages. You could, so there's some justification with that, but though it is extremely costly. But in the real world, you know, when you get to the everyday business, what, what's happening, in the, particularly in the commission and in the council, is that they're just using English more and more and more. Uh, and there is still this pushback from France uh, looking for a justification for this because the only two countries now within the EU where English is one of their official languages is Ireland and Malta. Wow. And they have their own <laughs> languages, right? And so that's a, a really small population of yeah. native English speakers within the e, these EU instant countries, uh, and yet the Eastern European countries who are, who are newer members into the EU, uh, they're not about to start learning French. You know, their second language was Russian, actually. Uh, and then when they dropped Russian and were very happy to drop it after the fall of the Soviet Union, they embraced English. So, you know, as much as the French would like to for, for French to be the dominant language of communication within those institutions, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. The availability, getting back to some of, of your early experiences and explorations of this, the, the intersection with education and access issues, uh, the divergence between Europe and America is shocking to me just from my own personal experience that I talk to people who grew up around the same time, you know, during the Cold War in much of Europe. And of course, I'm talking to them in English, which tells me something right away. But they talk about their language experiences. And yes, I'm in a bubble and I'm talking to a certain group of people and I'll acknowledge that. But they'll talk about having, you know, English instruction from a very young age, but they also learned, you know, Swedish and they also learned German and they're also okay in French and Italian and all of this. And I just shake my head because my experience in the Midwest growing up was I never saw a foreign language film. There was no pop culture influence from anything 
other than English at the time. There was no language opportunity in public schools yeah, at the time when it matters, I think, the most in early education. I believe it was probably seventh or eighth grade. And my options were French, German, or Spanish. And then in college, when I started getting interested in the world, of course, you, you have whole programs in French and Spanish and probably German. I don't recall too many other languages at my liberal arts university, but I was getting interested in the Middle East and decided I wanted to take Arabic. And so I inquired and they turned their head and looked at me like I was speaking Arabic because they're like, of course, we don't have Arabic classes. But the state school just up the street might, and we can have a reciprocal arrangement there. And they did have one Arabic instructor. So I signed up for a Arabic class the following semester, at which point they canceled their Arabic program. And this is still before 9-11, of course. So Arabic had not exploded in terms of the education and investment in it from uh, national programs. So here I was as an undergrad interested in a foreign language, wanting to get at least classroom training and not being able to get anything until I went to graduate school. And when I tell this to virtually anyone who grew up in Europe, they look at me as if I grew up in a cave because it's so foreign to their experience. Um, this builds, obviously, there's a whole lot of issues wrapped around this in terms of education and equity and experience. But I'm wondering if your research reflects that, that much of America outside of certain educational institutions and pockets the lack of access to foreign languages has made Americans default to just English, and the rest of the world has made it relatively easy for people like me to get by. Exactly. And, and you know, it really, it troubles me on a number of levels. It troubles me because we're, we're so isolated. We are living in our Anglophone bubble. And uh, I, I just feel like the world is talking over our heads. As I tell my students, I teach a, a seminar on comparative equality and anti-discrimination law. And those are Do you students teach it in English or in other languages? I teach it in English. <laughs> but those are students who are really interested in, in, and some of them have studied abroad or come from immigrant families. So these are a very select group of 20 students, you know. But, you know, I say to them, the rest of the world can access our, uh, our news and our politics because they can hook into... Our, our English-speaking news programs, we don't know what the rest of the world is thinking about us. If you cannot access their media through their language, you just don't really understand them. You don't really understand their culture unless you can read their literature. I have tried reading a book in uh, Italian and in English to see if there is a difference, you know, in the translation. And I do respect translators very highly. That is really an art form in and of itself. You know, I think of, you know, I, I, I think of some major translators who, who are really great artists, but you do lose something. You do, uh, I've read the Divina Commedia, Dante's Divina Commedia, parts of it, uh, in the old Tuscan vernacular when I was a student and then reading it in translation. It's different. The rhyme is different. The rhythm is different. You just don't get, you know, the original experience of the author. So there's so much that Anglophones, it's just not Americans, you know, but Anglophones in general lose. They lose it politically. They lose it culturally. They lose it. It's something personal uh, that they lose. Um, and it's unfortunate. The other side of it 
that has struck me with regard to the foreign language deficit in the United States is that there really is a, a racial class divide there. You know, poor kids don't get foreign languages. Poor kids get reading and math and teaching to the standardized test. Uh, but they don't get enrichment programs like music and art and foreign languages. And that's really important because now foreign languages do have a significant value in the global economy. So that closes them out of economic and social mobility opportunities. It denies them that more privileged kids have available to them. But the same thing happens in Europe with regard to English. Poor children don't get English or they get poor quality English in, in the public schools within Europe. But it, and it goes into the post-colonial countries globally, that they just don't have enough teachers to teach English very well. And in, in, in Europe, what I found, and, and in other countries as well, you have more privileged families uh, hiring tutors to teach their children English, in addition to whatever language, the better resource schools these children are attending as well. So there really is a very significant equity problem with regard to language, world languages, and including English. And a big part of your research into this um, has revealed that English language, in a sense, is not sought after for cultural enrichment in many cases. Um, it is sought after as a marketable skill <laughs> that if you can speak English in a large part of the world, um, you have access to jobs that simply were unimaginable to a generation earlier, whether it's you know one of the hundreds of thousands of people servicing the cruise industry and travel industry around the world, whether it's call centers that are emerging in dozens of languages um, that require not just passable English, but in some cases, American accented English, um, that those jobs pay much better than average jobs in many of those countries from which the applicants come. So people may, the gateway drug may be the sitcoms and the cartoons for some people who have access to that, but the actual pursuit of English as something I'm going to learn and be able to speak in is to improve economic prospects. And for many of those countries, that's really important. In the Philippines, I've been told that you can make more working in a call center than you can as a medical doctor, as a physician. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I have seen that. So for Even young, if it's close, that is telling. Right. And so for young people in countries, and I, and I, and I do discuss the call centers uh, in India and the Philippines in the book, um, and the negative aspects for those those young people as well. But for many of them, they're not coming from the, the highest educational levels. This is an but they do speak English relatively well. Uh, and so this is really an opportunity, an economic opportunity, a leg up for them, clearly. But across the world, young people know if you can speak English and read and write it very well, you have better economic job opportunities than if you don't. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, I want to dig into a couple of the case studies that you previewed a bit earlier. And the one that shocked me the more I learned about it is is the French case, because I don't pay a lot of attention to French politics and French cultural politics. So my armchair understanding was the French almost universally are highly defensive about the use of the language, very protective of it, and wanting to preserve the French language and and use it internationally, uh, politically, which is more of my area. But I had no idea that there was such a movement in France to graduate schools teaching in English to attract uh, primarily foreign graduate students. And the amazing interplay of, of variables and political and cultural and social values that have come out just in the last 20 years or so on that that use of English in France, in French universities. Talk through a little bit of that story over the last 20 years and how it has evolved um, such that it's left us where we are now. There seem to be two stories going on in France. On the one hand, you have the French government and President Macron uh, promoting French throughout the world uh, particularly in Africa, because they really believe that, that that's the only way they can maintain a foothold in Africa is through through French, but in France as well. Uh, so there's the on the one hand, well, you know, French is the language of diplomacy and culture and art, uh, and we shouldn't be so wedded to English. But then on the other hand, there's the reality of many of these higher ed institutions moving toward French toward French. You get a, a, an institute like Sciences Po in Paris, and I'm, I'm on their mailing list, so I get all their information, and um, everything's in English. I mean, they do have some programs in French, but it just seems to me that, and, and I see the change because my, my own son had studied at Sciences Po for his study abroad, and his university told him he had to take all his courses in French. But that's not the case. It has changed dramatically in, in 10 years. He had to go through the method and learn the method and get there early to learn the method and take all his courses in French. Now, you could go through, sail through Sciences Po without ever having taken a, a course in, in, in French. And that's one of the, particularly that you have these grands écoles, these more elite institutions, and you're even more likely to see uh, a proliferation of English talk uh, programs in those institutions than you do in the state, uh, the state-supported university system. So again, there's this inequity between what the more privileged are getting as compared to uh, the less the less 
privileged. Uh, and the business schools in France, which are very highly regarded, some of them, I think maybe in INSEAD, which I believe is number one, that might be totally in English by now. All their their business graduate programs, um, and they're bringing in, in in students from around the world. They're, these are very international programs. So on the one hand, you see the French government saying, "Well, you know, we have to pre- preserve French. It's so much a part of our national identity." And then there's the reality of what's really happening on the ground. But even within the government, if you look at the website of Campus France, which is a it's a nonprofit organization that's partially that's funded by the government. Uh, and they're responsible for promoting international programs, higher ed programs, and student mobility. Their website is in English, and, and there, there's a French version and an English version. But they're essentially telling you, you can come to France. Don't worry if you don't speak French. <laughs> you can come to France and be educated. And then, you know, you could pick up some French along the way, take some courses. So they're promoting their, their uh, higher ed institutions because they know they're competing against countries like the Netherlands and Denmark and Norway and Sweden and Germany that have uh, very vast numbers, particularly the Netherlands. They have the highest percentage of English speaking, of English taught programs. So France, these French institutions know that they're competing against other countries in addition to competing against the U.S. and Great Britain and Canada. For, student, for international students. And, and, you know, they have declining demographics. They're, they're really looking for more students to come in from other countries. So there's a, in, in a country like France, there's this real tension between what the government wants and even what the government understands it needs. Mm-hmm. And is that tension also played out among the French population? That is, we're talking largely about education policy and can people take take courses in France in a language like English, but for for the population of France itself, especially the immigrant populations and their their descendants over the last several decades, does, does that intersect at all with the tensions there? In terms of um, the post-colonial kinds of tensions? With yeah, I'm trying to think of, because to me, if, if, if I'm imagining that, that France is uh, in a sense open to, yes, you know, foreign students can come here uh, and take graduate courses in English. And we're okay with that in part because of market forces. We need to do that. But there's a whole generation of immigrants from North Africa, West Africa, and others who came to France. And it, it was basically, you're not French unless you speak French. And if there's a tension there as they're seeing what's going on in these educational debates. Well, there, there certainly is a tension there, and there's this, um, this understanding that, yes, if you don't speak French, then you're not really French. But then again, if you're not born in France, you're not really French either. So, I mean, that's, that's a whole, whole other political story. And, and quite frankly, in, in writing the book, the book really became uh, a discussion of geopolitics. It was really right. about geopolitics of language. That was really the heart of the book as, as, I, kept, as I kept working through it. And I think this is a really good example of that because now that French influence in in Africa and the, and the, mm-hmm. the uh, former French colonies is really waning for a whole bunch of reasons of recent developments both in West Africa and in France too. You know, the 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 uh, the, the death of a, a, a young 17-year-old North African boy 
uh, in Nanterre outside of Paris, uh, who was killed by a police officer, that just, it, it sparked protests around the country, around mm-hmm. France. Uh, and so that that's created even more hostility between the French government and the North African community living in France. Uh, yeah. To what extent that's impacted their language, uh, they too would like to learn English because they know it has a value in the global economy. Yeah. Building on the geopolitical angle, you talked about France you know, pushing the language in Africa as a way of holding on to its post-colonial influence. Uh, but there's there's a new guy in town, right? And that's China. And China's economic expansion and infrastructural expansion in Africa over the past 10 years or so has been amazing. And the Chinese language plays a role in that, but it feels different to me in some important ways. I don't get the sense that China is doing the colonial thing where they're saying to elites, you must speak Chinese, you must speak Mandarin um, because you have to interact with us in that language. Instead, it's more pushing for the language to be taught and and, and finding ways to, to invest in the language so that these large infrastructure projects and other economic opportunities have, have a better foundation, but it, it feels like a different flavor of geopolitical use of language. Oh, sure. And that, you know, that fascinated me. And that's part of the topic of the book I'm working on now, of using language and um, education, knowledge diplomacy as soft power to, to gain political and economic influence within a country instead of hard military power. And and China has used that very effectively through the Belt and Road Initiative and all that infrastructure building and and through the Confucius Institutes, which are so highly uh, controversial in the United States, and some of them have closed down, Uh, whereas they are just growing by leaps and bounds uh, in Africa, African countries. And what China is doing is... um, teaching Chinese to to young African students, uh, inviting them, providing scholarships for them to study in China. I believe it was in in 2018, there were 81,000 African students studying in China. In 2003, there were something like 1,080 African students studying in China. So you see this this dramatic growth Uh, And why do African students want to learn Chinese? Because Chinese companies are going into Africa and provide their building, not just infrastructure, not just roads uh, and highways, but they're they're building factories. They're Mm -hmm. providing jobs for these young people. So if you could speak Chinese well, you have a better opportunity to get a job um, in Africa. So to Mm -hmm. me that if you're, and I've written small pieces on this, Mm-hmm. Uh, the geopolitics of language within how China is using it in Africa, that you're really reaching the hearts and minds of these young people. Uh, and to what extent are is this harmful to democracy uh, in Africa? If Chinese, if African students are very eager to learn Chinese, going to China and feeling, some of them feel better because there's some kind of racial issues when they do go to China, but feeling more kindly towards towards China than towards the United States. And to what extent 
it has the Biden administration really understood that in terms of their own role. To what extent are they using language and, and knowledge diplomacy to reach the hearts and minds of this population? The, Democrat, the, the demographic dividend in Africa is enormous. You know, to what percent of the population of Africa is below the age of 25? It's enormous, enormous. There's a parallel there, right? The marketability of Chinese and the ability of so many young Africans to, to improve their economic prospects by learning Chinese for the Chinese factories and other enterprises that will be uh, presumably in Africa even more than now. But the other side we talked about with English was that that cultural influence and the fact of you know growing up watching the cartoons and sitcoms or even as a teenager or a grown-up watching the Marvel movies or Avatar or the Star Wars movies that seem to keep going on. Is there an equivalent Chinese influence? China is producing ma massive, major movies and lots of culture that, that, that are popular within China and Chinese-speaking populations. But do you have any sense that that is catching on among Africans as a way of getting them interested in the Chinese language other than as a tool for economic growth? I don't, I don't know for sure, but I would doubt that it's really influencing them culturally. And that's just a guess. It's a hunch. I think it is purely economic. It is purely for economic reasons. They could get jobs with the Chinese companies. They could get jobs with the Chinese consulate uh, in these countries. Yeah. Uh, it, it's opportunity for them. And unless the United States, you do still have the British Council there that, mm -hmm. that's promoting English throughout Africa and has for many, many years. Uh, but I just wonder to what extent uh, is the United States ignoring that picture? Right. You know, that's, that's, that's part of my new thinking and, and the new project I'm working on. It does set up a fascinating, if not a natural experiment close to it. Um, there are still too many variables to have high confidence methodologically, but you, you do have the case of the economic draws of English and Chinese and French in Africa being there, um, but very different policies of language promotion from the United States, France, and China, and then the very different cultural variables of entertainment and what people grow up on. So I, I have a feeling there are some really interesting cross tabs if you're looking at the data there that that makes some that would lead to some interesting insights for your next project certainly i think what what we see so you have china france and the united states in there but now you also have india and russia sure. moving into africa as well but to what extent any of these languages is going to push english aside i'm not so sure because i think what you're suggesting is you know we still have the cultural influence of uh, English and American English moving into yeah. these countries. What I find interesting in some of these countries is how English has been used as the language of protest, mm. where in these large protests, uh, like in Tunisia and, and uh, in the Arab Spring, and uh, I, I've seen it in Myanmar as well, in, 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 where young protesters, when they're trying to communicate with the local community, they will tweet or you know, use social media in their local language. When they're trying to reach the international community to bring the internationally on board to be sympathetic to their cause, they use English. Hmm. So the use of English as a protest language uh, 
I, I find that really interesting. I do wonder historically, uh, and maybe you have some insight into this, or maybe it's an open question, but if, if people have dug into the uses of that, you know, before internet technology, um, you know, the uses of, you know, get some pamphlets out in a language and get them on a ship overseas in the language of the country that will be receiving it in order to generate some kind of government or mass response. I'm certain it's been done in many contexts. I'm not coming up with the examples now, but the speed of the internet and just the the magnification effect that if you can get something trending on social media, it almost always will get the attention of decision makers as well as people who can donate, whether in time or in resources to support a cause overseas. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm sure there was some, you know, good marketing going on in times past through, through print, but if you could get your message across instantly across the globe, if you think of it, just across the globe, uh, that's pretty powerful. Uh, And if you have this common mode of communication where you're not only communicating with the Anglophone world, you're communicating with the world because the world understands English. So you really see the power of English as a geopolitical tool there. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something a moment ago that I I let slip by, but um, I'm sure not all of our listeners are familiar with the, the fundamental story or the controversy involved. Could you describe the Confucius Institutes uh, especially in the United States, and the Chinese language instruction and cultural awareness that was the uh, ostensible goal there. Um, but what the what the controversy was and where we stand on Chinese language promotion within the United States? A number of these programs have closed, but some of them haven't. Okay, and there, um, the controversy was that the Chinese government uh, was really controlling these programs, providing the teachers, providing the curriculum, uh, that teachers were instructed not to address certain hot topics like Tiananmen Square, okay, or the Uyghurs, you know, any, any abuses, any human rights abuses of China. So they were very limited. And the question becomes, you know, within universities, well, this is really undermining academic freedom. Uh, so that was the main controversy over some of these Confucius Institutes, and that's why some of them did close down or just start, or they were approached by the Chinese government and just refused the offer. There were a couple in Europe that closed as well, some in the United Kingdom. One, there was recently an issue in Germany, uh, but they're much more common in Europe than they are here. Uh, and there, we still do have some Confucius Institutes uh, because you were the univ- an institution was given um, the free opportunity to offer Chinese, and many students are interested in learning Chinese for all the sure. obvious reasons. Um, and so, an instit- uh, a university could do this very much at very limited cost uh, to themselves. So, it became extremely attractive, very appealing. But then, when it started rolling. And universities and colleges saw what it, the implications were. Um, a number of them just shut them down. Mm, yeah. But you know, in Africa, they're growing in Africa. You know, they they really are growing in Africa. Uh, and China's very it's very interesting because China gives them money, 
gives these African countries money and doesn't question any of their politics. You know, so, you know, if you have a dictator, that's okay. We're going, you know, we're not getting involved in your politics at all. If there are human rights abuses, you know, we, we're not going to bother with that. Whereas very often the United States or, or the UK uh, is going to hold back or defer funding because of certain uh, political abuses they see within a country. And are, I mean, they close their eyes to quite a lot, but they close their eyes to less than the, yes. than the, the Chinese do. So these African countries are just lapping up this money and, the, and, and lapping up these Confucius Institutes and relationships between Chinese universities and, mm-hmm. uh, and African universities and building beautiful buildings for them as well. That sets up a, a contrast in a, in a slightly different way, but it sets up the contrast with a country that that you've looked at quite quite closely in terms of this language debate and the politics of language, and that's Rwanda. Most people are familiar with the general outlines of the Rwandan genocide and its aftermath, but probably not with the language dimension of it and how the French language and the English language ended up getting caught up in all of that and how that in turn had an effect on how France and other countries interacted with the Rwandan leadership. So uh, post-genocide in particular, sketch that out for us and um, share what you learned about the, the evolution of the French and English language debate in Rwanda itself. Well, you're the, the present head of the Rwandan government, Kagame, he, came, he was English speaking. And he came, that was part of the Rwandan uh, Tutsi population that had fled Rwanda and moved into Uganda. And so they were English speaking when they returned. Uh, and so they, it was very much in their interest to, uh, to change over from uh, French to English because there was all this conflict as to, to what extent France was really complicit uh, in the genocide, okay. To what extent were they really supporting uh, the uh, the opposing sides? And that you know, th- that has been debated and written about uh, over the years, again and again and again. Uh, and there there are still questions about to what extent should France apologize for any uh, any uh, involvement they had in in the genocide in, in either supporting the Hutus or in closing their eyes to it and not and not helping the Tutsis. And to what extent was there was there any wrongdoing on the part of the Tutsis, the English speaking Tutsis? So after that, so Rwanda then decided that they were just going to cut bait and and switch over to English, but they did it so precipitously without enough preparation, particularly in the schools, and they realized that they didn't have a sufficient number of teachers to teach in English. They didn't have the instructional materials to do it. So they had to backpedal a little bit, but now English is is an official language of Rwanda and Rwanda is essentially an English speaking country, but many of the people still speak French. Many of the elite still speak French. It's such an interesting uh, layer on top of what the the general understanding is about the Rwandan genocide and everything else to realize the language dimension and of course the the implications of that um, not only in not only in Rwanda but elsewhere. 
Um, and you, you, I won't preview everything that's in your book, which was published last year. And I should mention it's called the rise of English. And we'll of course link to it in our show notes, but there are equally fascinating stories about uh, Morocco and South Africa and India. And of course, some of the European countries we've mentioned. Uh, but I do want to return to the United States for something that I've been thinking about myself and thinking about with with my children and thinking about for my own intellectual enrichment, which is what what languages do Americans learn? And I got to say that for every, you know, Pete Buttigieg who decides he wants to learn Norwegian because he wants to read Ibsen in it in his native language, you know, there's probably a million people who learn Spanish because they realize, you know, if they're going to, let's say, manage uh, any kind of franchise or run a business in much of the United States, uh, you may need to communicate with workers who speak Spanish as a native language and maybe their only language. And if you're going to interact with potential uh, customers, you probably want Spanish more than anything else for work in the United States itself. That is, it's not to enrich you internationally. It's simply to be a better person interacting within the economic environment um, of, of the United States itself. Uh, but that isn't necessarily the goal of a lot of language programs, which is get people overseas, experience cultures, learn, if not to think differently, and we can talk about the science of that, but at least to open your mind to different ways of thinking. It's a much more practical exercise to learn Spanish so that you can exchange a few words with somebody about how to accomplish a task in a work environment. Talk through that a little bit. You know, how do you see the the way that we frame the the teaching of language in the United States as something that helps us right here because that's America first and more important versus language is useful to enrich yourself and open yourself up to new experiences? It's troubling. It really is troubling because we see it in such a a, a, a small way. And it's, but it's important as well. I mean, we see that Spanish is really the second language in this country. We have a rising, just look at, you know, the, the migrants coming over the border now. We here in New York City, a, a million migrants settling in New York City. Some of the, most of them speak Spanish, but we don't understand. Some of them are speaking indigenous languages that are not Spanish. And that causes other problems for the schools as well. Uh, but so there really is a need for uh, an, an opportunity, a job opportunity, career opportunity for speakers, uh, individuals who could speak Spanish in this country. So we cannot deny it. There, you know, that it, it sounds very utilitarian, but that's a reality. Uh, to what extent schools are uh, promoting language study? I don't think they're promoting it enough to begin with. Uh, there's this small, and I talk about in the book, this small movement that is growing uh, to promote dual language instruction in the elementary schools beginning in kindergarten, where you have uh, two populations within one classroom of immigrant or children who speak the language from home as their home language, and then other students. Then half of the day is in English and half of the day is in another language. Those programs are growing. They really are growing, and they're growing pretty quickly in cities like New York. And, and I look at in the book, uh, I do look at New York, and I look at California, and I look at Utah, and the role of the Mormon community in Utah in promoting in promoting languages for their religion, their religion, religious mission. Uh, 
so I don't think we promote foreign languages enough. I don't think we promote study abroad enough in this country. It's only a thin layer of our students who do study abroad, who have the resources to study abroad. Uh, we don't give enough scholarships. We don't provide enough opportunity for poor kids to study abroad. Uh, and the why of it as to why we promote it, uh, yeah, part of it is you know the, this cultural aspect that you, you broaden your horizons, and you do by living in, in an, another country, for sure. Uh, but for the students themselves and their families, I think yeah. a lot of this has to do with what's the economic value. So when you think of it, why send your child to study in France? You know, in the United States, does that really provide you with more job opportunities? Not a lot, no. you know, not a lot. But why send your child to study in Latin America or Mexico or, or Spain in a Spanish-speaking country? Well, that has more value. That has more value to it. But what you see is a lot of the students who come from the United States and study abroad end up taking these English-taught programs. So they're studying in English. And, and you know, to what extent are they, re they really learning the language of the host country? Or not, and this has become an issue in some of these countries, like the Netherlands, that have really been on the vanguard mm. of promoting English-taught programs. They're now saying, "Well, you know, we have all these students coming here because it's like a catch-22. Uh, they're they're we have them coming because they're providing revenue and helping us with our international rankings, and the only way we could attract them is by providing English-taught programs." But then what's happening to our language? What's happening to the Dutch language or the Danish language? Is it dying as a result of that? And so in some of those countries, you see this pushback where there's in now in, in the Netherlands, there's a proposal to, uh, to cut back on the numbers of English taught programs themselves. Uh, what that does for international enrollments, you know, that remains to be seen and also to require students coming in to study Dutch where they have yeah. to and they so to push them into some of the Dutch speaking programs. So in terms of study abroad, it's an issue for what's happening on this side of, of the Atlantic mm -hmm. and what's happening on that side of the Atlantic. There's so many follow-up issues there that I want to get to, but I have one correction. I believe when I and I know that Secretary Buddha Judge and his his fans will will probably respond negatively if I don't correct it. So I, th I think I said that he learned Norwegian because he wanted to read Ibsen, but it, it wasn't Ibsen and I'm forgetting the name, but it was a Norwegian um, humor and satire novelist. But just to put that out there, um, a couple of follow-ups. One, you mentioned the instruction in English in European universities that um, there might be a requirement to take at least some language in the host country language. That my understanding is that's not universal. Um, how common is that? And, and what countries, for example, in France, uh, does one, even if you can get instruction in English, are you required to take some French language, culture, history? Uh, and is that is that similar across other European countries that have advanced studies in English? To my knowledge, in the business schools, that's and that's where you see the most English-taught programs, to my knowledge, it's not required. Uh, now, whether it's required in uh, something in a place like Sciences Po, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. Because to me, that's that kind of 
catches both sides if you do it right. You know, you're you're getting the people who realize, well, I need to take the classes in English, but we're going to make sure that you get exposed to our language while you're here. Part of the problem for the for some of the Nordic countries is also a demographic decline. That that they have a, a smaller youth population, mm-hmm. and so they really need outsiders, educated outsiders, to come in. Uh, and to stay there, to remain there, and to work there, and not to take this free or, or, or rather, you know, uh, uh, insignificant cost education, and take it back to their home country. Uh, and one way that they could perhaps incentivize these young people to stay is by requiring them to learn the language of the host country, and that so that they can interact, you know, and 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 take jobs within corporations, but within the service industries as well, within those host countries. So there's that discussion going on in yeah. Norway and, and Denmark uh, and Sweden and, and the Netherlands. It does raise so many interesting issues of, you know, you can't imagine people going to, you know, Japan to learn Japanese in order to help you with international commerce overall, uh, much less something like Icelandic. It's yeah, it's not a language that has a huge international representation. And yet people I know who have learned these languages uh, find it so enriching at the personal level. And it does open up connections, uh, if not globally, uh, at least connected to 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 that country and its culture and its its experiences. Um, in Europe, do you get the sense that there is any consideration of that? Because we've, we've talked very practically here. We've talked about it as a very rational choice. But do you get a sense that there is some emotional attachment to the idea of, of speaking languages so that one really can learn the culture of neighboring countries or other international countries? Europe is so small. You know, when you look at it on the map, it's rather startling <laughs> to see it as compared to the United States. <clears throat> but um I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It raises another issue for me, too. You talked about the language instruction in the United States. And of course, we talked about Spanish versus other languages. But I understand that at least in some jurisdictions, that a what used to be a foreign language requirement, uh, sometimes in, in public schools, sometimes elsewhere, that some jurisdictions are now allowing something like learning a computer language, a coding language as a language requirement. And I get it at some level. And part of me bangs my head against the wall in frustration at that, because that's not, that's not a different cultural, linguistic, literary experience. It's using English words or other things using our alphabet to, to, to program a computer, not to interact in vernacular with other human beings. Uh, first of all, have you heard that, that computer coding is being considered a, a language in some places? And if so, um, what are the implications of that? Sure. Uh, it's not widespread, but you do have a couple of states that have uh, that have swapped out foreign languages for computer coding. Uh, you can in a broad sense, you know, you could think of it as language, computer coding, but it has totally different objectives to it, totally different objectives. And it really just belies the whole or defies the whole reason for learning other languages. 
you know, that whole personal experience of personal growth experience of learning about other people, becoming a citizen of the world. Computer coding has nothing to do with that. Uh, but you do see a couple of states that have done that. Yeah, it's trouble. It, it is. Yeah, it is a concern. Mm-hmm. Let me let me take it to a big picture question here uh, to wrap up the main discussion. Um, do you feel that it's fair to conclude from from all of this study of English and its similarities and differences from other languages around the world that this spread of English, this if not dominance, the preeminent position of English as as a global language is is good or bad? What what value judgment do you put on it given that there are so many potential benefits and so many drawbacks for different populations? It's both. You know, it is good and it is bad. And I don't and I um you know, there, there are those who think of it as, you know, it's linguistic hegemony, it, it's linguisticide, uh, it's killing, it's a language killer, it's killing other languages. To some extent it is, uh, but there is a value in having a common language. Uh, and if that common language is English for now, it can change. I don't see it changing in the near future, but it could change at some time and become could become Spanish. You know, if I had to think of a candidate, the next candidate for a global language, it could be Spanish when you think of the large numbers of Spanish speakers around around the world. But for now, it's English. And there really is a value to having a common language, to for people to be able to communicate one-on-one. There's something to be said. I, it's, it, if you look at, which is really interesting, uh, the the uh, role of English in uh, diplomacy and in international diplomacy, and it's really come through pretty clearly through the the uh, Russian invasion of the Ukraine, um, where you have uh, Zelensky, Volodymyr Zelensky, addressing the UK Parliament in English, addressing the US Congress in English, making a commencement speech at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, in English, to a standing applause, uh, where he's able to communicate to people in their own language uh, and using it as a very effective diplomatic tool, not using an interpreter as the intermediary. So when you think of that, the impact that has, uh, it's enormous. And also where he can control the message if he's speaking in English and not worry about what, how the interpreter is interpreting what he says, because there are so many nuances within, within interpretation and translation. So to what, when, when you look at that and you see that happening in real time, it really, you see the impact of having this common means of communication throughout the world. Uh, are there problems with English in, in terms of uh, stamping out other languages and uh, to what extent is it uh, having a negative impact on national identities? I'm not sure. In, in Europe, in European countries, they worry about it. In Italy now, you have the government now uh, trying to pr- promoting legislation. I, I, I don't think it will pass. I, I really hope it doesn't, but I doubt if it will. That is forcing people to learn to speak Italian. You know that Italian must be taught only Italian in the schools as a language of instruction. Uh, that businesses have to use 
Italian, that contracts, business contracts have to be written in Italian, that companies cannot use English phrases like deadline, okay? <laughs> they, they have to use the Italian equivalent uh, with fines imposed, hefty fines imposed on those who violate the laws, where you have a movement in Italy to make uh, Italian, to uh, engraft it into the Italian constitution as the official language of Italy. It is not in the, the official, it's not in the constitution. Other, you know, unlike France, which, you know, it is a constitutional provision. Uh, in Italy, it isn't. Some of them, that has goes back to Mussolini and fascism and the fears of how Mussolini really uh, enforced the Italian language on people who were speaking all those regional dialects. Um, so there is this concern in some of these countries that we're losing our identity, we're losing our culture to English. Uh, to what extent that's real, I don't know. I don't know. But to what extent their languages will be used for knowledge production, that's real. That's real. Where now, if you're particularly in the sciences, if you want to publish, you have to publish in English. Even some uh, some journals that were foreign language journals within the sciences have changed over into English, have changed their names into English even. Mm -hmm. So if you're an academician in another country and you want to promote your career, you really have, you have to write in English, you have to present your, uh, your presentations at conferences in English. Uh, so to what extent these languages will be used, will be now... Uh, limited to use as a vernacular, you know, and in conversation and won't be uh, used for knowledge production, that is a problem. That is a real problem. And I feel like that, to, to close the loop on something else you mentioned there, that seems to me to be the largest barrier to Egypt. Uh, I'm sorry, let me retake that. The largest barrier to English being eclipsed by something like Spanish as a, a global common language, because when it comes to science, uh, technology, I, maybe I'm out of the loop, but, but I don't see a lot of the prominent sciences um, having dominant journals in the Spanish language. It's, it's English. Now you can make the point that yes, but in some fields going back to the 19th century, German was a dominant language of science. If you compare the amount of scientific research being published in journals read internationally then to now, um, it's a dramatic difference. And all of the institutional scientific knowledge of the last, let's say, 50 years only with virtual universal English on so many topics, that's hard for any language to, to quickly overcome despite things like Brexit and other things that maybe politically have made English less, less attractive to parts of the world for other reasons, there is still that very dominant position intellectually that's hard to overcome. Oh, sure. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Knowledge is now produced largely in English, uh, and it's disseminated very quickly because of the internet. Uh, and to what extent artificial in intelligence is going to change this or spread it? We don't know uh, where it will be very, it'll be quite easy to translate scientific articles into German or Spanish or Hindi or whatever. So is artificial intelligence going to promote or, or hamper the spread of English 
in some way. We really, we really don't know. Well, let's close our conversation by reaching into our vaunted chatterbox and asking you a random question from within. Rosemary, please recommend any recent book you've read or podcast you've listened to or TV show you've watched. Um, recent book, Nancy Pelosi's biography. And I don't, I don't have the, the time to read many books because of most of what I read is ad- addressing my research projects and, and my writing. Uh, so I did take the time to read this and I found it because I find her to be a very uh, interesting political personality. I mean, this was a, 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 a woman politician who took Donald Trump on yeah. uh, and did it in a very effective way. And you had to feel at times that she was holding the country together, mm-hmm. that she, through the worst of times, through the worst of times, and he- tried to hold him accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was it? What produced this strong woman? You know, we have never had a woman president. It's really difficult for us to, to elect a woman to the presidency where other major countries have done so. Uh, but she came the closest to it. She really did. Uh, and she did it in such an extraordinary way. And I wanted, I just wanted to know what was it in her background? I mean, she came from a very political background, uh, for sure, you know, from her father and her mother and uh, the, the role of, the, 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 of that family mm-hmm. uh, in terms of city politics. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted, I wanted to dig deeper into the psyche of a woman who could rise to that level and a woman who had five children to boot, who had raised five children to boot and who didn't come into political life until later uh, and and did such an extraordinary... I mean, certainly there are people who would disagree, uh, but I think she did an extraordinary job of holding the country together through the most challenging of... And unimaginable of times, you know, dealing with a president, you know, who had who was extraordinarily problematic on the inter, not just the national scene, but the international scene, uh, and through a, a major p- pandemic that we had not seen in a hundred years. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for spending so much time talking with us about the rise of English globally. Well, thank you for inviting me. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.